right, enough talk about that. Let's go to the Bible. If you found Mark chapter 10, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's word. Mark chapter 10, and I'll call your attention down to verse 32. It's just three verses, but they are filled with significance. Mark chapter 10, verses 32. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed. Those who followed were afraid. Taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Let's pray. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you will bind up wounds that seem to never end. I pray that you would heal hearts that have been broken. Father, I pray that you would bring healing to souls that have been hurt. I pray that you would strengthen marriages where they are weak. I pray that you would convict of sin and then bring forgiveness and restoration and healing and wholeness. I pray for every man and woman that have walked in believe in God and have yet yielded to the Lordship of your Son, Jesus. So we pray in Jesus' name that Christ would be lifted up in such a way and adorned in such a way today that the Spirit will use that to draw people to yourself. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. Many of you will remember in 1998, Saving Private Ryan came out. Even if you weren't alive there, maybe you've heard of Saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan was a groundbreaking movie at the time. In fact, in 98, it sparked sort of a renaissance of interest in World War II and all the drama involved. A couple of paths to take into that. A lot of you watch documentaries. Some of you like to read World War II history. Some of you find yourselves reading uh, historical fiction set in World War II. That really started in 1998. If you watch the movie, the opening scene is captivating. The American GIs are disembarking from the troop ships out at sea in the English Channel. And they're stacked shoulder to shoulder in those Higgins boats. Those Higgins boats would would go toward the beach, especially Omaha Beach for the Americans, disgorge the GIs onto the Omaha Beach into the teeth of the enemy. And as you watch the opening scene of that movie, you can actually start to feel, some of the veterans would say this, you, you start to feel just a fraction of the tension that those American GIs experienced. It's an intense and moving 
seen. What, Spiel, what Spielberg did there feels like what Mark is doing Mark chapter 10, verse 32, Mark has now ratcheted up the intensity. In context, what's happened so far is the story of the rich young ruler and the lesson that is given. The rich young ruler walks away, and as the rich young ruler is gone and that lesson is taught, they are now on the road again. And for the very first time in the Gospel of Mark, for the very first time, he actually says it. Mark's been intimating at it for two chapters now. And here in verse 32, Mark explicitly says they are going up to Jerusalem. First time. As they travel for the third time, Jesus explains to the disciples what's going to happen to him when they go up to Jerusalem. That he will be killed. He's already told them this two times. If you read the Gospel of Mark, he's already told them twice. Mark chapter 8, verse 31, you remember the great confession that Peter makes. You are the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. And with joy in his, in his heart, he says that, and Jesus brings them down. And, and in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, for the very first time, he tells them of the necessity. I am going up to Jerusalem, there I will die. The second time is also kind of after a really joyous occasion, Mark chapter 9, verse 31, after the transfiguration when Jesus is changed before their very eyes and Peter says, man, let's build some shelters and stay here. Jesus, the disciples walk back down the mountain and in Mark chapter 9, verse 31, Jesus tells them, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die there. And he tells them the certainty of those events, that this is the plan of God. And now, in chapter 10, in this passage, Jesus gives an intricate detail, in intricate detail, how everything is going to unfold when they get to Jerusalem. And as he does that, Mark holds Jesus up for us and gives us a biographical sketch of him. And really, if, if Mark does that as an expositional preacher, that's what I want to do. I want to use what Mark has done for us and, and provide for you a biographical sketch to convince you. I want to convince you that Jesus is who you need and all you need. If you're a skeptic, you've been coming for some time, you believe in God, you might even think you're a Christian, I want you to see Jesus is who you need and all you need. Let's look at the attributes or the traits or the biographical sketch. I'll make those our points. We'll start slowly. Here's the first one. Number one, he is our redeemer. Redeemer. We are caged by Sin, we are slaves to sin. We belong to a slave master and the Redeemer comes in and purchases. He buys us. He's the Redeemer. Let's go to the text. Verse 32 tells us that they are going up to Jerusalem. They're on the road and they're going up to Jerusalem. 
Now, you always said it like that. If you lived in that day and time, regardless of where you were coming from, if you went to Jerusalem, you would say, we are going up to Jerusalem. Sometimes you would say that because of the altitude, because you're actually climbing a hill from almost any direction. It's on Mount Zion, so you're going up to Jerusalem. But more times than not, you said it like that because Jerusalem is the holy city. And you go up there. Because up in Jerusalem, that's where the Temple Mount is. That's where the sacrifices are given. That's where God is appeased. That's where it's okay for God to be close to man because of the sacrifice. Now, they are headed in that direction. The long-awaited Messiah, the King, the one Peter looked at and said, You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. The Redeemer is going up to Jerusalem. You've been going through the Old Testament in a reading plan. Or if you show up here in Foundations, I'll be teaching through the major prophets the next six weeks. And so much of what we read in the Old Testament, all the allusions, all of the types, all of the prophecies, all of that will be fulfilled in Jesus going up to Jerusalem. All of the Old Testament sacrifices, everything that went on in the temple, every time a sheep or a goat was killed and its throat was slit and blood was shed, that was a reminder of a greater sacrifice coming. Those sacrifices didn't work. They pointed to the one that would work, that there would be one coming, and that one would come up to Jerusalem there he would be killed. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem to be the sacrifice for sinners. That's the gospel. In that little, that little word, Jesus going up to Jerusalem, there, there's the gospel in there. Because Jesus will go to Jerusalem to take the wrath of God as the representative human in our place, what we deserve. And he will give us his righteousness... And that happens when, when you, what does it take to become a Christian? When you put your faith in Jesus, that he lived and died in your place, God raised him from the dead, and that victory is yours in Jesus, that you trust in Christ and Christ alone. You trust him as your redeemer, redeemer. There's another attribute here in the text, so we'll pick it up a little faster. <clears throat> He is our redeemer. Number two, he is also our example. He is our example. We don't think about Jesus like this very often. But sometimes when you're preaching theologically, we want to make sure of the transaction, of how it works. What is it that saves us? His, his substitution, the, the blood of Christ. We want to look at all of the theology. But there is a part we sometimes skip over, and that is Christ as our example. It's an interesting detail right there in verse 32. If you're not careful, you're running right by it. Pull you back and look at it with me. Verse 32. They are on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus is walking ahead of them. Why did Mark tell us that? Why did he point out right here, going up to Jerusalem, Jesus is walking ahead of them? He's not walking with them like he normally would do as sort of the, the scribe teaching the disciples. 
He will pull them aside in a moment, and we'll get to that. He'll pull the 12 aside, and he'll teach them there. But, but here, something has happened. It's good for us to gaze on that form right there, that one out front. It's good for us to see the majestic fortitude of our Savior, of Jesus and Him going up to Jerusalem, knowing what's going to happen to Him there in Jerusalem. Isaiah 50 says it like this, Jesus set His face like flint. It's good for us to look at Him for a moment. It's not all He is. He's not just an example, but He is our example. I want you to see His strength. I want you to see his courage. Look, look at him. I want you to see his bravery. Luke, when Luke tells this story in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, when Luke tells us this, he says that when the days drew near to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to die there. The coming difficult events they are part of God's purpose for Jesus to save sinners, part of the plan of salvation, and He will accomplish it with determination. Your example, His determination, His unfaltering, unwavering courage. Courage has been baptized in toxicity, Today's society, we need to pull it out of that and put it back over here. It's a Christian attribute. It's a good thing for you to have courage. Jonathan Edwards, a great Puritan preacher who's actually an American icon in religious circles, preached the most famous sermon in America, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and he sort of gets a bad rap as, as just a hellfire preacher. He was more than that. He was a happy, a happy man. As a young man, when he was 17, he wrote a whole list of resolutions or things he resolved to do. You ought to Google it sometime, find Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. They are amazing. And I would say to you, look past Jonathan Edwards to Christ and him right here as our example and see his determination, see his discipline. Make him your example in, in commitment and and joy in your ethic. What is your ethic for life? Christ is, is our Redeemer. Yes, He died in our place. He is also our example. There's more to it than that, though. Keep looking at Him there. You'll find it. Number three, Jesus is our shepherd. He is our shepherd. I want you to know that Psalm, the 23rd, and I'll quote it in a moment. When you read verse 32, look at all. Look at now... Not, not so much at Jesus. Look at the 12 and the people following in verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, of them. We're always kind of wondering, who is the them? Jesus is walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. They were amazed. Those who followed were afraid. Now, here's the picture. As the good shepherd, he is out front. John 10 tells us he's the good shepherd. As the good shepherd, he is out front. But there's something that has happened. <clears throat> Mark, I wish you would tell us more. But he tells us just enough to say there's something has happened there because the, the, 
The people are amazed and afraid. What are they amazed at? What are they afraid of? Something has changed in Jesus' demeanor. Something's happened. It's the look in his eye. It's the change in his gait. You know, if you know somebody real well, good friend or husband or wife, somebody you've been with a long time, you can, you can tell. You know by the way they walk, something's going on. And the crowd here is amazed and they're afraid at how he looked. What's he doing out front there? It seems as if they know that they are going to Jerusalem and to go to Jerusalem in the company of Jesus is risky. They're afraid. In fact, I'll, I think you can make a one-to-one. One-to-one. To, to be associated with Jesus in this world, risky. Man, I'm so thankful for the brave, courageous students, high school and middle school and, man, college and coming outside of college. I'm so thankful for what God has given us at, Hick- at Hickory Grove and the guts it takes to follow Jesus into a place you know is hostile to what you hold dear. To, to live for Jesus in 2024. To trust His Word. To follow His ways. To use His ethic. It doesn't mean you can't be afraid. They were afraid. They're still following Him there. They were amazed. It's good for us to hold on to 23rd Psalm. Do you know the 23rd Psalm? You should memorize the 23rd Psalm. You should have that in your heart and be able to quote it right right alongside the Lord's Prayer. Be able to do that. The 23rd Psalm. What does it say? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me on paths of righteousness, and it's for his name's sake. And and even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't be afraid. He's with me. His rod and staff, they comfort me. He's prepared a table. Isn't this amazing? He prepares a table before me where? In the presence of my enemies. Letting them know I got a big brother. Surely goodness and prosperity will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house Lord, forever. Who is Jesus? Jesus is our Redeemer. He is, of course, our example. He is our shepherd. I'm going to give you a fourth one, number four. He is our teacher. Verse 32 is our teacher. So let's, let's join him back on the road, walking down the road. He's out front. They're amazed and afraid. Something happens in verse 32. Jesus pulls the 12 aside to teach them like he always does. Let me read it to you. They're on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is walking ahead of them. They were amazed. Those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them, this is what is going to happen to me. I'm going to teach you. It's what Jesus does. He teaches us. Even in the word disciple. When we talk about being a Christian, we are disciples We have discipleship groups. The word disciple is a learner. It means to learn. That that means you are being taught something. 
That's what Jesus does, teaches. So let's think through for a moment. Let's just take an aside here, a little cul-de-sac. We'll come right back out. But how does God, how does God teach us? Several ways. You can think of several ways that God teaches us. I'll give you just a few to consider. The first way God teaches us is through his word, the Bible. How are you going to learn who God is, what he wants, what his will is, what it means to be a Christian? The Bible. The more Bible you read, the more you're going to learn about God. We trust that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, that it is sufficient to teach you all the ways you need to know to live your life. Come from the Bible. So find out how to please God, get that in the Bible. You want to hear God speak, read the Bible out loud. It is God's word. How do we learn? We learn through the Bible. Something else, we learn through creation. You might call that common grace or you might call that general revelation. We learn through creation. We look around us and we see that there is a God. We, something had to happen here. Someone had to put this into place. That this is God's world, not ours, His. If it were my world, it would never rain on a Sunday, ever. But it rains on Sundays a whole lot in Charlotte, North Carolina. So that tells me it's not mine, it's God. He does what He wants with His creation. We look around creation and we learn about God. His word and creation. You know how else we, we learn? We learn through relationships. We learn through the people that God has put in our lives and God uses those relationships to sanctify us, to make us holy, to, to sand down the rough spots. That's what marriage will do for you. I know, I, look, I know Valentine's Day is coming up and romance is fine, but let me just tell you that marriage is for your sanctification. That is there so you grow in Christ. And normally you grow in Christ because you're learning patience with that person. Why does God bring you relationships? He's teaching you, usually humbling you, humbling. How else do we learn? We learn through, we learn through suffering, through suffering. A lot of you have walked through that. You've hurt so deeply you didn't think you'd have ever come out of the hole you're in. God teaches us in suffering. He teaches you that you're going to make it. He teaches you that he provides. He teaches you how he uses the church. He teaches you about his grace and kindness and su sustaining you. God teaches us in worship. That we gather together on a Sunday morning with people that are nothing like us and we sing one song together. We, we are taught that this is about God and not us. Worship teaches us that this is about God. Worship teaches us the joy and the, and the necessity of having our souls ministered to by other people. Worship teaches us not to be prejudiced because everybody not like us, and yet we come together under the lordship of Christ. Worship teaches us. Providence. You know what else teaches us? Providence. I'll stop here. I keep listening to things I won't, but, but, but providence. And when I say providence, I don't mean the general history of looking back at how God has worked in world history, I think that's a great thing to do. I mean your own personal providence. Some of you, you, you've been alive long enough right now, you can turn around, look back, and you can see how God worked in all of those situations, even when you didn't feel like he was working in that situation. God teaches you as you look at his providence. What is he now? What is he what is he teaching? What is he teaching you? What else do we learn about Jesus from this passage? There's a fifth thing. It's number five, right? Everybody know? Everybody awake? Number five? Okay. Here's the fifth one. 
What do we learn? That he is Lord. He is Lord. Verses 33 and 34. In verse 33 and 34, you hear Jesus teaching. What you have there is the substance of what he taught the 12 as he's going up to Jerusalem. And when you read it, and I'm going to read it to you, <clears throat> there is such intricate detail. He lets them know ex exactly what's going to happen. <clears throat> In fact, there's so much detail in verse 33 and 34 that in the early part of the 20th century, liberal theological scholars, the liberal ones that didn't believe the Bible was true, they, they came up with the fact that this, there's so much detail there, this had to be written after it happened because otherwise there's no way Jesus could have known what was going to happen. I mean, unless, of course, he's Jesus. Which is the whole point here, right? In this passage, what Jesus does in verse 13 and 14 is that he calmly and clearly describes everything that will be leading up to the circumstances that bring about redemption. And all of them have to do with his own death. I mean, when, when you read it, there's nothing held back. There's nothing unforeseen. Jesus tells them this so they'll know this is not something in, that is involuntary. I am doing this on purpose. This is the third time I've told you. I'm going to give it to you clearly how it's going to unfold so that you know I'm not going up there as a victim. It's just good to remember that, that the crucifixion didn't just happen to Jesus. The crucifixion is a result of his own free, determined will. When you think about Jesus Christ and his life and his earthly ministry, from the very beginning of the earthly ministry of Jesus, he saw the cross set before him. He was always going up to Jerusalem. He would go there as a willing and intentional Savior. It's, a, it's important for us to get this, that He's the one in control. He goes there on purpose. The Jews, the scribes, the Pharisees, even Pilate will think they are in control. They are not in control. Jesus is in control. And the point of this, when he teaches his disciples, the twelve, he is telling them that he, he is Lord. Now look, brother, I want him to be your Lord. I want you to know the joy of serving God by putting your faith in Jesus. I want you to know the security and the strength of knowing Christ as Lord. I want you to know the freeing the, the freedom of having your sins, though they be many, having your sins taken away by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I want you to have Christ as Lord. I want you to joyfully submit to His good plan for your life and be able to say, even in sorrow, Christ is Lord. This text tells us part of His biography is that He's Lord. I'll give you another thing to consider about Jesus in verse 33 and 34. Number six, 
He is our substitute. This is my favorite word about substitute. My favorite thought of what Christ has done for us. When you read verses 33 and 34, and I'm going to take those verses and we're going to go through it quickly, you can just look at it. If you want to just keep looking at it, and I'll just say some things about each, because there are about six or seven or eight or nine, depending on how you do it, uh, things that happen to Jesus that he calls out and they are there for us. He lives, dies in our place. And the detail in verse 33 and 34 is astounding. It's not listed like this in any other gospel and it's, it's fascinating. Let's go through it quickly so we can see Jesus in our place. Here we go, verse 33. Join me there. When you feel betrayed, the text in verse 30, 33 says he was delivered over. He was delivered over. When you've ever felt betrayed by someone, you look to Jesus. Jesus was betrayed by his friend Judas. He would be betrayed by his disciple Peter. He, was, he knows what it feels like to, to be betrayed. If you've been betrayed and you felt the bitterness and the hurt and the pain of that, I want you to go to the cross of Jesus and let that poison be there at the cross. Quit carrying that poison around. Jesus did that for you. You felt betrayed? Go there to the cross of Jesus. When you feel condemned, verse 33 says that he's, he was sentenced to death. He was condemned to death. When you feel the weight of that, Man, if you've ever been to the point of despair and something has hurt you so deeply, something you did that caused you such pain, you thought about self-harm or suicide, you felt the condemnation and the world closing in on you, I want you to go to the cross and there, there, let that poison your feeling, let that be on Jesus because he did that for you. He was condemned. You don't carry condemnation. Jesus, that goes to Jesus. Look, let me give you something else. When you... When you feel your sin, verse 33, that little phrase is camouflaged. Verse 33, he was hand, I'll be handed over to the Gentiles. Do you see that? Handed over to the Gentiles. Gentiles, that's just code language for the Romans. It's a veiled way of saying Jesus will be crucified. Look, brother, when you feel your sin, when you feel it, some of you, you've committed enough sin to feel it. When you feel it, you quit carrying that poison. We go to the cross. Jesus died for your sin. You put the sin there. You go to the cross. He's our substitute. Look, when you're misunderstood, come to verse 34. When you're misunderstood, the Son of Man says, I'm going there to be mocked for all of those that will be misunderstood. All of those that will be mischaracterized. You felt that, and you felt the shame of that, and the poison, maybe the bitterness of that. We need to go to the cross with it. You need to take that right there to the cross of Jesus because he went through that for you. Look, when you feel mistreated, you ever felt mistreated? You felt humiliated, you ever been humiliated? You stay there in verse 34. Look at Jesus. Jesus says, I'm going up there to Jerusalem to be spit on. Would you ever go anywhere to be spit? I'm going up there to be spit bad on. It's condescending. It's disrespectful. It's humiliating. Jesus did that for you so that when you have the poison of humiliation, you go to the cross of Jesus. You leave that there. He went through that for you. When you're abused, when you're abused of, of whatever kind, 
You go to verse 34 and you, you look at Jesus in Jerusalem. He says, I'm going up there to Jerusalem. I'm going there to be flogged. I'm going there to be whipped. All that was, the Roman soldiers did, all that was, was an egregious punishment. It, it was nothing more than the Romans showing dominance over Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm going here to take the poison out of it. That's what the cross does. When, when, when you're guilty, verse 34, when you're guilty, when you actually do something and as you did it, you know you did it, and you're ashamed that you did it, Jesus says, they're going to kill me. The wages of sin is death. Jesus paid every bit of it. Look, here's the gospel story. What is Christianity? Jesus in my place. That's the gospel. Substitution. Jesus is, is who you need and all you need. I'll give you one last one. It's in verse 34. It's tucked down in there. That part of his biography is this. He is our hope. Our hope. Do you see it in verse 34 at the very end? I'm sure you do already. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. But after three days, he will rise. But you have right there in that little phrase, after three days, he will rise. There is the miraculous smile of God on all sinners. That's the resurrection of Jesus. What does the resurrection do? The resurrection confirms our forgiveness. The resurrection defeats death once and for all. The resurrection shames Satan. The resurrection guarantees heaven. Christ has gone on before us. The resurrection tells us you put your faith in one who's made it so that you are justified before God. The resurrection unites us with Christ. The resurrection tells us the Bible is true. The resurrection, the resurrection proves that the gospel works. And the resurrection restores joy. Why? Because we one day will be raised like him. I'm trying to convince you that, that Jesus is Lord. He is who you need. And He is all you need. This morning I want you to trust Him, know Him, and love Him. As we close out this time of preaching, I want you to join me with a moment or two of commitment and prayer. With your heads bowed this morning before we sing another song. Join me as we pray with your heads bowed. And as you pray, I'm just going to ask that today would be a day of, of salvation for you, a day of turning to Christ, a day of yielding to the Lordship of Jesus. You can come forward and talk to a pastor while we sing if you'd like or, or talk to us in the lobby afterwards, but let's talk about what it means for you to step over and, and see Jesus in your place, living and dying for you. God has spoken to your heart the preach word today. We'll invite you to come so we can pray for you. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word that you've given us. We thank you for the joy of singing. We thank you for the picture of Christ. We thank you for the guaranteed hope we have. We thank you that Jesus is Lord. We thank you that your son Jesus is who we need and all we need. Spirit of God, I pray you would apply this to the hearts of people. I pray you would bring healing and hope 
that you would return joy, that you would strengthen the saints. We thank you for a good day singing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.